Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Ni Hao, Konnichiwa, Salam Aleikum, and Shalom. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Hello. And today we've got Peyton Nyquist, CEO and founder at Numinous, which is a psychedelic therapy provider based in Vancouver, Canada. And we actually recorded this episode live and in person in Austin, Texas at the South by Southwest Conference. Love doing these in-person podcasts, and I really love what Peyton and Numinous are all about. They're on track to become the first profitable publicly traded psychedelics company. And we're going to dive into the company culture and their approach that is helping to facilitate that. We're also going to talk about their work with East Forest and psychedelic music of the future. All that and a whole lot more right now coming your way. As always, thanks for tapping in. I appreciate you riding with me. It's an honor to host this podcast for you. And please consider rating and reviewing the Micropreneur podcast wherever you're listening and sharing it with a friend if you feel so compelled. Have a wonderful and enchanting day. Let's get this show on the road. Que pasa, Mufasa? What's up, Peyton? How you doing? Doing well. How are you? Fantastic. We've got Peyton from Numinous here. Let's talk about Numinous a little bit. Talk about South by Southwest. Talk about the state of the psychedelics industry. And very interesting for me personally, some of the work that you're doing with musicians in the space and yeah. what you're doing. So probably what I want to start off with today is I recently learned that Numinous is on track to become the first profitable publicly traded psychedelics company. What's the secret sauce? What are you doing that other people aren't? What's the track there? Yeah, it's. I, I would say it's a little bit of a bummer that you have to you have to bring together secret sauce with being profitable. That should, at least in our view, that should kind of be the game plan for for everybody. But you know, for us, I would say the way that we've approached the space and. You know, we're very excited about psychedelics being more available, but there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be created and built around just psychedelic therapy for that to be effective. So I think the psychedelic industry, we kind of, there's this microcosm and we think, oh, like everybody knows what we're talking about and there's community support, but most of the people who are looking for above ground legal psychedelic therapy don't have a they don't come from a community they don't come from a deep understanding and so while there's a lot of excitement and there's you know a lot of good articles being written about psychedelics being effective for mental health you really got to make sure that you're preparing people and their community for you know what happens before what happens after and that's i think where we've been quite successful and i've been in this game for a minute I've heard the projections of the estimated value of the psychedelics industry all over the place, from the low, more conservative, sober end of $2.5 billion this year and the next couple years, to $8 billion, all the way up to a trillion dollars if you talk to Zappy Zappelin, right? So how do you, projecting forward, value the psychedelics industry? Without making like a super grandiose projection, just like how does Numinous prepare for this market that could potentially be anywhere from the low end of, you know, a couple billion dollars all the way up to huge amounts of money. Yeah. I think I think it's interesting that we still call like the psychedelic industry a psychedelic industry. There's I think there's subsections of different industries that psychedelics are are coming into and integrating into, whether that's drug development or, you know, in in our case more service delivery. So you know, as as we look at that, I, I I think if you think about mental health and you think about psychedelic services, there's been no innovation or change in mental health care in 50 years since the invention of SSRIs, and we've seen, you know, the limitations in regards to that. So 
I think when we think about like the size of the industry or, or what the kind of opportunity is, you know, yes, it's a, it's a big thing when we, when we paint it in the picture of like mental health care, wellness, all those kinds of things. It's a big, you can, you can easily paint the picture of a big number, but we're still at the stage of like talking about one company potentially being profitable in this space. So while that all sounds great, there's a lot of work to do still. So can't put the cart before the horse, right? Yeah. And you're all based in Vancouver, Canada. So mm -hmm. of course, Canada has a little bit of a different regulatory landscape than the good old US of A where mm -hmm. I'm from. And I'm curious to hear about that because I've been hearing about different manufacturers licenses being granted yep. and in Vancouver of course Dana Larson I believe is his name has opened a store that's got a lot of press where you can buy all kinds of different substances mm -hmm. and it just generally has a more lax prohibitive framework around substances as far as I can tell yeah. but can you paint a very brief uh, regulatory overview for us of the of the landscape there in Canada yeah you know certainly Canada and BC actually most recently they've gone and decriminalized a, a whole bunch of different drugs including MDMA so you're now I think you can legally have up to three grams of MDMA on you and I would say you know there's there's a couple things with that one is because we have a universal health care system there's a there's an argument around uh, is it unethical to restrict somebody getting access to um, different therapies or medications if if they've got clinical trials that show that they're effective and that was a big argument a couple of years ago when we were pushing to to try and help support changing the special access drug program which special access drug program is a, a program that's existed in Canada that allows for Canadians to get access to drugs or therapies before they've completed clinical trials, but as long as there's a, a phase two or a phase three that's shown that they're effective. So we we helped make some of those changes about a year and a half ago, and now Health Canada started to approve both approve psilocybin therapy. They approve about 10 to 20 a week now. Um, so it's, it's picking up some steam. It's rolling. Um, Health Canada has actually paid for a couple of Canadians to get access to that treatment as well. So, and I think, you know, they're looking obviously at what's happened in Australia, which has been a big move. Um, Alberta province in Canada has also moved to just legalize all psychedelic therapy. So they're, they're trying to figure out how is this going to integrate into the healthcare system. Um, and so, it's an exciting time up in Canada and to see, I would say, you know, while clinical trials are important, I think Health Canada is also looking at this from, from a, a patient access standpoint. And, you know, one of the things that we continue to see with psychedelics, which we're very interested in, is you're seeing them being effective for all these different indications. And, and for us, you know, while there's a lot of like research around treatment resistant different indications, a big argument for us is also where do we prioritize psychedelic therapy in someone's healthcare journey? And when you talk about treatment resistant depression or treatment resistant anxiety, um, treatment resistant PTSD, why are we making people have to do like three or four different things that might actually make it worse before we're giving them something that we've seen is effective? And so I'm we're hopeful and, and that's kind of one of the opportunities we see in Canada is to 
maybe start to prioritize that a little bit. Totally. And having a regulated, state-regulated, medicalized use is obviously hugely, hugely advantageous for a lot of people. My parents would never go get underground substances. They right. go through their GP. I think a lot of people can relate to that statement. But there's also, I've observed sort of a push and pull and a tension between for-profit companies and this push towards decriminalization and grow, gift, gather, model, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd be curious, where does Numinous stand on this idea of psychedelic use outside of a clinical medicalized yeah. environment? All the above. I, I don't, th I think, I think it's, I think all of it is important. I, I, I personally agree, you know, this, the argument around decriminalization, everybody should have, you know, the access to explore their own consciousness if, if nobody's being harmed. 100%. 100% I agree with that. I think the challenge we run into right now is if you take, you know, if we if I think about the people who come to our clinics, someone with severe depression or severe anxiety, you know, it's a little bit naive for us to be like, well, you should be able to explore your own consciousness. And that person's like, I can't even fathom. That sounds lovely. I can't even fathom that right now because I'm really struggling. So I, I think both are important. The, the hope for me with um, you know, whether it's the clinical trials or whether the inclusion of a medical access model as well as a decriminalization model is hopefully that opens up opportunities for funding, insurance support, um, so that there's just more people that can actually financially be able to afford some of these different things that are, that are fairly expensive, especially if you're looking to work with, you know, somebody that is highly trained and, and you're, you're really there to try and overcome some, some very challenging mental health situation. Sure, I couldn't agree more. I think a both-and approach is necessary. So one of the issues that I've seen with the psychedelic emergent industry or ecosystem, we'll call it, is that there's just so much information all over the place. Like yeah. even here at South by Southwest, I'm trying to parse through a million things that are happening. And it's really helpful to have certain news sources or platforms that kind of curate that for you and help you to gain perspective and know what's happening. And of course, there's some great people we probably both know. Psychedelic Alpha does a great job of kind of painting an overview of the psychedelic sector. You've got Psychedelics Today. There's Double Blind. There's a number of other publications. There's Mycopreneur. <laughs> Where do you turn to stay abreast of all the developments that are happening in the space? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, I, I really, really love the, the amount of like cultural support and information with people who are passionate about psychedelics, I think is really, really cool. Um, I think it hasn't lost, it certainly oscillates depending on, you know, where we've been at, but I, I would say it hasn't lost, at least for me, the kind of cultural and reverence aspect of, of this work, um, which is really cool. But I think all the ones you mentioned, um, you know, I, I, I do really appreciate the lens and, and we experience this at Numinous a lot, but the lens, there's so many different lenses that people look at psychedelics through. And, you know, we, we hear every week, there's some new, new vantage point, a new reference point that we're being asked to look at the space from. And we appreciate that. And so I like the, I, I like the diversity of different reference points. You know, it's whether you're looking at clinical trial results and watching, you know, some of the stuff that like a, a Robin Carhart Harris puts out all the way to, you know, we had a, a panel while we were here talking about music and, and Charlotte from uh, Ancestor Project, who, what's the, what's the new one? Uh, psychedelic Liberation. Psychedelic Liberation Training, um, talking a lot about like the ancestral, you know, use of psychedelics as well. So it's cool that we have all of these kind of different 
different places that we can get different different viewpoints. Totally. Let's dive into that for a second because I saw that panel that you were on and that's mm -hmm. something that speaks to me very deeply is when I first got into psychedelics and had a macrodose mushroom experience, it was music that really pulled me into that and that's been the guiding force of so many of my journeys, right? Mm -hmm. To the point where if I have a psychedelic experience, a lot of times the real effects won't kick in to the extent that I would hope they would until some kind of playlist comes on or yeah. I'm guiding it, right? And that, that sense of working with music and having uh, epigenetic memories, having ancestral memories of music. You told a story about going through an ayahuasca ceremony shortly after the birth of your daughter, mm -hmm. and it was profoundly transformational and impactful for you. Can you share some of that story with us? Yeah, yeah. So I had, this was uh, a couple of years ago, but I, I, it was shortly after my daughter was born, and I went through one of those sort of like, complete destruction type of, of ayahuasca ceremonies. And, um, and the one thing that I was, I was like fearful of or holding on to was I, as I was kind of having my reality and everything taken away from me, there was this like not wanting to lose my daughter. And in this sort of like negotiating with a hurricane is sort of what it felt like. Um, really like looking at all of the different aspects of what was actually you know, myself getting in the way of me having a better connection with my, with my daughter and showing up as a father. Um, and that was all taking place in silence. It was a part of the ceremony where everything was silent. And, um, in this like complete chaos, um, the, the provider that I was working with started singing some of the Ikros and the Ikros showed up for me as like this rope that, that was being pulled down and I could see, at the end of the rope, which was also the Ikros, um, my daughter was at the other end of, of this rope. And as the Ikros started to, as I could pay attention to and connect more deeply to that song, I started to see myself like pulling myself up out of this kind of darkness that I was in and pulling up on this rope towards my daughter. And it was this paying attention to the music and really the music also kind of pulling me out of that space as well. So um, it's, you know, it's it's one of the things when we look at cultural or ancestral use of psychedelics, there's there's really no, there's no side of that that doesn't include music. It doesn't include sound. You know, you look at, um, I think I think the the oldest dating we have of psychedelics being used in ceremony is is probably Chavine down in Peru and the use of Wachuma. Um, and I think that was carbon dating, put that back like 5,000 BC. And if you look at the structure of Shavin, that whole temple has, is built around the carrying of sound. And so these ceremonies would take place where people would take Wachuma and then sit in different chambers in this temple and sound would resonate through that whole thing. So we've really not got any when you know when I think about ayahuasca, I don't think about the substance. I think about the gross, and I think about all that. So um, now you know we we do. Whether you're talking about ketamine or whether you're talking about clinical trials, it's now like okay, we're gonna like throw together some playlists or or what have you. But um, it's not getting. I don't think the kind of attention um, that it really really needs and and deserves and. You know, we had East Forest, who was on that panel with us, who is kind of like the OG of, of, call it Western kind of ceremonial psychedelic music, who's been doing it for 
15 years now and um and even for him he said like you know he sees his music being used in all these playlists but how is how is the artist being um involved in that process i mean east force puts out these beautiful albums and the whole idea is that it's an arc that carries you through a journey and we take it and we splice it and we grab like one part of the song and put put it somewhere in the playlist and he's saying like there's a, there's an intention to why that whole play like why that whole album would be created in the way that it's created so 100% yeah decontextualizing music is a modern phenomenon right and like I love to collect vinyl and part of it is that it's kind of like a tangible physical artifact I can connect with the stories that are on the back and now when I put on playlists I still value it like I love my playlists but it, it kind of loses something in that I think having um that's it's it's an interesting time to navigate and I'm fascinated with mystical experiences I grew up in the church my grandfather was a pastor so I grew up hearing a lot about prayer about the power of music gospel music things mm. like this right very deeply touch me grew up playing the piano still produce music and this sense of mystical states though really came alive for me when I had my first psilocybin mushroom experience where I was like oh that's what they were talking about right like I never felt like I had a transcendental mystical experience until I had a high dose mushroom experience as many people can relate with I remember listening to an artist named the genie who, who does scratch guitar as his style and I heard a completely composed non-existent guitar line and that was an example of that, like whilst under the influence of psilocybin mushrooms, hearing something that was there, that I, it complemented the music perfectly, but it was I knew the songs inside and out, and it was not part of that. And like those kind of mystical experiences to me are what really attract me, among many other things, but uh, to, to the psychedelic experiences. Like that's almost impossible to explain, almost impossible to measure. So in, sen in a sense, I've had this conversation a lot with people. There's a bit of an irony in trying to decontextualize and dilute and distill the psychedelic experience into a very regimented, FDA-approved experience. I think we're all kind of navigating that right now. Yeah. So you just touched on East Forest, and I'd love to dive into that. As I was preparing for this interview, as mentioned, I was imagining we were going to do, you know, this is the business focus, which you are, but like that's your your one angle we're going to do. And then when I found out about the music angle, I thought, oh, I can loosen up and be myself a little bit more. We can talk about that. So you were able to support East Forest on tour. Numinous had a collaboration with East Forest. I'd love to hear about that. What was that like? How did that come about? And yeah. and do you hope to do more stuff like that in the future, I would imagine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, it kind of came through East Forest and I've been talking... We, we did an event about a year and a half ago with with a couple of different artists, East Forest, Beretta from, from Glitch Mob, and uh, John Hopkins. And, um, you know, it was a, a thing we did in L.A., and, and it was really in an effort to bring together community, but also give people, you know, exactly what we're talking about, like, give people some context and a little understanding of, of what these kind of experiences are like. And... You know, it was an opportunity for us to bring together people with deep psychedelic experience all the way to like, you know, moms and stuff like that who were hearing about this, but trying to get an understanding of, of what it was all about and, and build some community around that. So um, going to this last tour we did, we did about 15 stops and it was incredible. We, we'd have about 500 people at, at these different shows and um, it was just, yeah, an, an opportunity for us to kind of show for, you know, for the people who have been following Numinous, how we sort of see and, and want to approach not only providing psychedelic therapy, but what we feel is really important is also those community aspects of things as well. And, you know, we're not here to just 
crank out ketamine doses for people or, or anything like that. And so I think that that's really important. But to, to one of the things you just touched on, this kind of like over-protocoling over of psychedelics, which I understand for the FDA and I get why, you know, that's kind of the approach that it's taken. You can't, like, there's no one-size-fits-all with psychedelic use and, and in particular with people's kind of mental health or healing journeys as well. So, um, you know, we we kind of look at that as, as how do we continue to create touch points and for people to continue to engage with this journey, knowing that, you know, it's it's not a three-dose protocol with a little integration on either side of that, that, that really what this is all about, so... Yeah, and I'm curious to hear where you think we're headed because I think two years ago, three years ago, money was easy to come by. Everyone was starting companies. There was this kind of utopian, ungrounded sense of psychedelics saving the world. And now you look and we just had synthesis have a complete implosion. Of course, a lot of people talking about that. Ketamine wellness centers just closed their doors after 12 years in business. And I think there's more of a sober approach to, okay, Maybe we have to rethink this. And uh, a thinker in the space I greatly respect, Ashley Southard, mentions she, she believes you can't move fast and break things in this yep. industry, right? People are trying to project what's worked in other verticals and what's worked in the cannabis industry under this space. And like it may or may not work. But right now, I think as a community, as an ecosystem, we're starting to reevaluate and kind of rethink where are we headed with all this? Obviously, everyone's still tremendously excited about the direction of psychedelics being mainstreamed in most cases, right? Yeah. And you've got the Biden administration talking about psilocybin MDMA, maps on you know phase three trials and on track to have MDMA legalized in a safe medical context, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Where do you see us heading in the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think this, this consolidation period that's been happening for a year and a half, frankly, has been super necessary. Um, I was hopeful that it was going to happen a little bit sooner than it did. Um, I think, you know, that to your point, there was a lot of money raised a couple of years ago, um, probably far more than, than should have. Um, but I think, you know, that speaks to the level of excitement around psychedelics and, and the level of, of people really wanting new ways of looking at and, and treating mental health. But, um, but I think, you know, there's two things that, doesn't really matter how much money you raise, you, you can't buy experience or intention. And you know that what we're looking at creating, it takes a lot of experience. It's the same if you think about like a, a psychedelic therapist, they can have the most expensive short training possible, but it's really, it's time in the flight simulator and, and really kind of understanding all of this that is really necessary and, and that's, I think where we're at now is, is at least from what I see is um, intentions I think are, are very, very clear, but also um, a real prioritizing of, you know, what is, what is important and needed right now. Um, you know, it was crazy to me to watch how quickly things went, you know, when we started Numinous, I could have never expected things to move, frankly, as quickly or, or largely as they did in regards to people raising money and next thing you knew there was people developing bazillionth generation psychedelic drugs meanwhile we don't even have you know ones that mother nature's worked on for millions of years being available um and so it's good to see like okay maybe we can just get back to like what it what do we need to do right now knowing that there's lots of opportunity in the future 
Um, but but how do we get back to a little groundedness of um, you know psilocybin from what we see works really really good and yeah. uh, <laughs> we can we can focus on some of those things first um, and then start to look at you know how can we how can we you know look at look, look at other opportunities but uh, let's let's keep it simple let's keep it simple yeah that's one of my recurring insights from a lot of my psychedelic experiences like why are you complicating this so much like yeah. keep it simple and focus on what you do well and do that and have a good time yeah. chilling having a good time it's a nice unbroken circle just do that so I've been a psychonaut for years and there's this idea from the underground community of like the roots versus the suits and sure. a lot of people saying like oh no these the corporatization process is going to steal the soul and people looking at you and other people in the space as being like those are the enemy and I kind of always said like why don't we just talk to them you know like oh, have you ever talked to these people like so and I find often it's not the suits versus the roots there's a lot of suits who are part of the roots you know who are yeah, they have one role, but they're also they have a personal history and a trajectory, and these substances have impacted them. And I'd be curious to hear about your journey, like what got you into the psychedelic space, and why did you decide to start Numinous? Sure. Um, yeah, going back, so I I suffered with severe chronic pain since birth, and um, and you know had had two family members that that really struggled with substance abuse, and my mom got sober when I was twelve, and at twelve she she kind of came to me and she said sorry about the last 12 years, you know, you might, you might want to start talking to somebody. And, and I took that really seriously because of my chronic pain. I was in this trying to figure out how to rectify that. And so at 12 became very passionate about mental health and, and the, the kind of intersection of mental health, physical health, which then led me down this road of spirituality and all those kinds of things. Um, and that stayed as a throughput for me throughout my whole life. And, um, but no matter what I was doing, my chronic pain continued to get worse and worse and worse. I tried every single thing that I could do to try and rectify my, my chronic pain issues. Um, and never tried psychedelics because I grew up in a family that struggled with substance abuse and tried to always be like the kind of anti-recreational drug person, um, which was... A little bit of a novelty other than I would say cannabis in Vancouver is not really recognized as a recreational drug uh, it's, so um, other than that 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 was kind of my pathway um, but got myself to a point where I was towards the end of that journey I was in the hospital three four times a week and was sort of out of options and turned to psychedelics really as like a last ditch and um, it was actually ayahuasca I was I was sitting in the the trauma ward at, at Lionsgate Hospital in Vancouver and, and I said to my now wife, I was like, I gotta I gotta do something different and um and told her about ayahuasca and so for me my, my chronic pain was chronic gut pain and uh and so she said, Let me get this straight. Your your plan to cure your chronic gut pain that you're having is to go and drink this brew in the in the middle of the jungle, uh in a in a maloka and I was like, Yeah, that's that's the game plan and um and booked a flight from while i was in the hospital went home and packed my bags and and got on the plane and um not to paint the picture of a panacea um but one week with ayahuasca and i never had any chronic pain symptoms out of ever again and um came out of that experience really just trying to figure out how i could give back to something that saved my life i, I never planned on quitting my job and starting a company and, and doing everything that we've done but um in a very short period of time started having conversations with 
maps and health Canada and, and when I was asking like what you know what what would be needed or, or what could support this this conversation around infrastructure and you know how are we gonna move all of this amazing research that's being done how are we gonna move that into practice and um, and so that's always kind of been the reason for for why numinous exists and and for myself um, you know I really um, when we when we built Numinous, it was never to take it public. I, I was very disenfranchised with public markets. I always prided myself on being like the anti-public markets, public markets guy, the tattoos and whatever came before psychedelics did. But uh, but um, you know, it, it was fast again, just kind of fascinating to see how quickly things moved, and um, and grateful that we're here, and grateful, you know, to your point around you know now being able to to talk about being a. A profitable psychedelic company and um, and also you know last I think last quarter we we uh, we did about oh, just about 20,000 sessions for people last quarter so it's very cool to see it uh, doing doing what it was intended to do so, that is very cool yeah. wonderful so I've got two more questions for you I want to loop back to talking about music yeah. and in specific what's on your playlist right now what are you listening to who are you listening to I I am a, I'm, I'm a bit of a, all the above uh, I would say depending on uh, depending on what I'm doing but uh, I, I I grew up in Vancouver so I, I always have a little bit of Pacific Northwest grunginess to me so I'm a big Chris Cornell fan so that's always been like a, a staple in the playlist but uh, but yeah kind of depending on depending on what I'm doing I'm, I'm a little bit all over the map sure Chris Cornell I think was in a group too called uh, Temple of the, Temple Dog. Of the Dog I thought that was a really underrated project I used to hear that on alt radio yes uh, a lot of people don't know this so I'm from San Diego but a couple Pearl Jam members are San Diegans That's Eddie right. Vedder's from San Diego I always feel like give the, give us some flowers you know <laughs> like they're definitely a Pacific Northwest band but yeah. like Matt Cameron the drummer and Eddie Vedder are San Diegans through and through actually from Chula Vista where I'm from at least Matt Cameron oh, in that really? case yeah which I'm very proud of I feel like San Diego gets overlooked a lot we're like LA's younger unimportant right. sibling right but it's cool Tom Waits is from San Diego like okay. a lot of Frank Zappa spent years there Jim Morrison was born there so like we, we got our little thing going Anything, on, you know? Yeah. So the last question I have for you is what's coming next for Numinous? You know, what's coming over the next six months to a year or so? Yeah, we're, we're quite excited. I mean, we've been, we've been working with MAPS for a number of years now. And, you know, with MDMA being at this kind of very interesting time of they're now complete their Phase 3B clinical trials. And I would say now, like, the, the hard work of where do we go from here is, is next. And so... We're very, very grateful to be supporting and being a part of, of that. Um, but really, you know, we're, we're in this process now of we've rebranded. A lot of the clinics that we had were under different brand names. And um, so we've gone through a whole rebranding process that we're going to launch shortly. And, and with that, you know, start to build a lot more of the community offerings, continue to do things like the music events and, and stuff like that. So while... You know, we're continuing to, to really focus on the work that we're doing in our centers. Um, how do we make sure that those ripples are being kind of felt outside? And uh, and so that's that's really exciting for us over the next little bit. And then obviously continuing to push to that profitability number as soon as possible. Let's go. Peyton, thanks for the interview, man. I really appreciate it. Likewise. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. 
or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.